The Guardian. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook if you sign up for a two-week trial of their service. Audible has 40,000 titles available to download. For all the details, follow the links at guardian.co.uk slash audible. I'm Madeleine Bunting, and this is the Guardian Focus podcast. In our monthly take on global development issues, we ask, what impact is climate change already having on the developing world? Next week, climate talks resume in Cancun, Mexico, with the credibility of the entire negotiation system at stake. Today, we'll discuss what the meeting can really achieve and whether local action can bring about positive change. Joining me in the studio is John Vidal, The Guardian's environment editor, and Davith Stewart from the NGO Global Witness. And down the line from Cancun is Salim Al-Huq from the International Institute for Environment and Development. Welcome to you all. Now, the countries most vulnerable to climate change are also the poorest and the least equipped to deal with the challenges facing them. Last month, I travelled across Mali in West Africa to see the impact of global warming firsthand, and I started off in a remote region of the Sahel. I'm walking over a bare rock. Uh, The sun's beating down and there's a very strong wind. This must be one of the most hostile environments for human beings to try and eke a living from the soil. This is Mali and it's one of the countries that will be most affected by climate change. The vulnerability of the people here to their immediate environment is so intense, they depend on the land so much, and the changes in rainfall, the way the soil is being eroded, is making them very, very vulnerable. I'm here with Mr Maiga, and he's going to explain a little bit about some of the changes that he's seen uh, in the last few years. As you can see, now we are standing on rocks. But before, years ago, there used to be land on this rock. So all these places you see were used to be uh, farms. So it's uh, no doubt the effects of uh, soil erosion okay, due to water. When it uh, rains a lot here, water cannot go deep okay, uh, in the soil. So uh, this population here, the local population, is losing the amount of land available for agriculture. So we've just arrived at Dandali, uh, which is about uh, 20 minutes outside the local provincial town of Bandiagara, and we're sitting in the shelter of a, a very simple structure with a number of the local village elders. And I'm going to ask Chief Ambadigamu if he could just talk to us a little bit about some of the changes that he has seen in this area in the last few decades. In the past, you know, the rainy season could take up to five months. But currently, it's just uh, two or three months of rain. These rain also are not well shared according to the places in the area, as in the past. For example, in one month, it can heavily rain, and for the rest of the rainy season, so sometimes there is a shortage of rain. So this affects the agriculture world in a way. So we heard there about the problems of unpredictable rainfall and soil erosion. In Mali, as in many developing countries, climate change is a live daily reality. John, you recently got back from an epic journey tracing the impacts of climate change from the Andes to the Amazon. 
Tell us, what did you see? Well, it's really what we didn't see, which was very much water. Uh, the whole region is going through terrible, terrible water shortages. And this starts up at the top where the glaciers are melting on all the high peaks, uh, Colombia, Bolivia, Ecuador, Peru. The rivers are running dry. Areas which used to be perfectly farmable are now becoming deserted. And you're seeing extremes of temperature, uh, both hot and cold. But basically, you're seeing water shortages, which are, are now affecting the cities, also the electricity production from hydroelectricity. So it's getting much more serious. So do you see things like water being cut off in urban areas? No, what we saw was conflict. I mean, effectively, the water has been cut off. There is only, we went to Espinar in Peru, a city of about 50,000. They have water for between half an hour and two hours a day. Um, and that's come down from four hours or three hours, only five or 10 years ago and now we went to see the environment ministries and people and they say well this is nothing unusual um, in Peru in that one province of Peru they talked of 1,000 conflicts developing over water of which at least 50 were serious so we got right in the middle of water conflicts and uh, there were protests and uh, the next day police shot one person. And what about soil erosion are there problems with the land not being used for not being able to use it for farming? Yes, the problem is there's just not enough water for the animals or for the crops. So if you have too many animals there, then the, 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 obviously they, they denude completely the land, uh, so the soil erodes even faster. Um, I mean, these are very fragile highland environments anyway. So instead of being able to farm maybe 300 animals per family 10 years ago, now they're down to 20 or 30. So they're desperately trying to find ways of collecting water, harvesting water um, and using it differently. Salimul, which countries would you reckon are the most vulnerable here? And how many people are we talking about? Well, in the uh, UN Framework Convention process, there are three groups of countries that are deemed to be particularly vulnerable. One of them are the small island developing states, uh, countries like Tuvalu and Samoa in the Pacific, the Maldives in the Indian Ocean, which are low-lying and will be affected by cyclones, hurricanes and sea level rise. And there's about 40 plus of them. The other group are what are all the least developed countries, which are basically the poorest countries in the world, and there's about 50 of them, most of them in sub-Saharan Africa. And they are both going to be affected by the impacts of climate change and because of their very uh, poor conditions of their populations are going to be particularly vulnerable. Third group are the African continent as a whole. And if you put these three groups together, we're talking about roughly 100 countries with roughly a population of a billion people. Uh, who are deemed to be amongst the most vulnerable. And that doesn't actually include the South American countries uh, uh, along the Andes that John just mentioned, which are also going to be quite affected by climate change. So the vulnerable countries are actually, practically every country in the world is going to be vulnerable in some part of it, for some of its population. But the poorer developing countries are the ones that are going to be most badly affected, particularly in the near term. Salimul, perhaps you could just explain a little bit more about Africa. What are the real risks in Africa? Is it about lack of water or, or soil erosion? What's the real challenge here? Well, I think John has uh, put his finger on it. But the main impact is going to be with regard to water, either shortages in particularly dry places or too much of it in the more flood-prone uh, parts of the continent. And because of Africa's agriculture being primarily rain-fed agriculture, and unlike in Asia where it is more irrigated, uh, this lack of uh, rainfall and, and changes in rainfall patterns in particular are likely to cause quite severe impacts on 
food production at the national level and because of a lot of the people being subsistence farmers are going to be badly affected as well. Davis, uh, these countries don't sound like the big polluters. They've not created the problem. Is, is that right? The ones that are suffering most, that will suffer most, are not actually the ones that have created this problem? Yes, that's correct. It's not just that the most vulnerable countries are the ones who have caused the least or contributed the least to climate change, but it's also the most vulnerable people within those countries that will suffer the most from climate change. It's the local farmers who can no longer produce their crops or or feed their animals. It's the people who depend on the local forests for its produce who are who are seeing it cleared or, or dying as, as the droughts move in. The Saharan desert spreads and agricultural land becomes more scarce and people migrate into new areas, creating conflict with those that live there already, which is what we have seen historically through the Darfur region and, and other parts of sort of central Africa. And it's the people who are most vulnerable who have the least options available to them to adapt to climate change, to migrate when there is these social upheavals, and the ones who are usually the victims of the conflicts. Let's hear from Mali again. I wanted to look at how people were combating the encroachment of the desert. Uh, we've arrived in the village of Anakila. Uh, it's taken us about three hours driving across very dry, dusty plains where there's clearly sand building up in many areas. And we've come to this very, very busy village with several hundred people living here in very small mud houses uh, and narrow streets, lots of animals, goats around us and, and lots and lots of children. This is the village chief, Sambu Kimbo. It's just unbelievable that one day, <laughs> one day this tune may be able to drive us away from our land. Because I can remember that my childhood was an excellent one with these beautiful rains that was falling regularly and these beautiful farms flourishing, blossoming and the very good harvest we have. But nowadays, our worry is that we, we have no longer much, much, much plot of land where we can grow our seeds. And also, our river is disappearing. I'm sure if it goes on like this, we are going to move. May God prevent us from this. We've just walked up to the top of the dune and we're looking down on the village and its patchwork of fields and, and low mud houses and, and the trees beyond and the dune is right at the village boundary. I, I'm talking to Amadou Bagindo and he's going to tell us a little bit about what he has seen change over the last 18 years as the dune has built up. Ten years before, there was no dune like that. There were a few big trees, okay, and just a little, you know, traces of sand. So they couldn't see it as a problem ten years before. Where there are the dunes, you know, this uh, area used to be big farms in the past. But as you can see, nowadays we cannot uh, grow here. Uh, last year, as an example, they planted three lines of trees here on top of a dune, but you can see there is no more tree. The villagers have been advised against planting trees in the rainy season when there is a risk of worms eating the new roots, but they realise that their efforts can only ever be piecemeal and there are bigger issues at stake. As the villagers danced and sang to wish us farewell on our journey home, the village chief told us of the message he has for the negotiators at this month's Cancun Climate Change Summit. 
My strong message to this government is that there have been many, many meetings going on on climate change, things like that, but no agreement has been reached. But it's high time they reached the agreement because my great concern is that this dune, the dune in my village is really about to consume my village. They must find solution and the solution must be taken. So a plea there for Cancun to urgently reach agreement on climate change. Salimul, last year's Copenhagen climate talks ended in stalemate. Why will Cancun be any different? Well, I think there are several reasons why uh, Cancun will be different, uh, I hope will be different. Firstly, people have realised, all countries have realised that the all-or-nothing approach that was taken in Copenhagen of getting everything tied together in one big uh, uh, global treaty is simply not going to work. And people are being much more realistic about uh, trying to achieve something rather than everything together. And there are several things that are achievable in taking that more incremental approach. Uh, The most important, from my point of view, is the the issue of adaptation or supporting adaptation through international finance uh, flows from the rich countries to the most vulnerable countries. In Copenhagen, the rich countries promised $30 billion over three years, what is called fast start finance, of which this would be balanced between mitigation and adaptation. If this can be put on the table, can be actually materialized in Cancun, then the text that's being agreed on adaptation is actually very near agreement. It's just a matter of getting the money in place and making it flow over the next couple of years. And if that can be done, at least on that front, we will hopefully get some achievement and some outcomes from Cancun. I've heard the suggestion that the deal on adaptation could be sort of parked while they try and sort out other aspects of the talks. Uh, now, because they're bogged down in real conflict, this could be an indefinite parking, if you like. Is that an issue? Well, unfortunately, it is. And, and that uh, speaks to the issue I raised earlier. Is the approach we had earlier was nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And if that approach continues, and there are a few countries that are trying to push that, then we will obviously have nothing coming out of Cancun. On the other hand, if the approach becomes more pragmatic of let us agree what can be agreed and park whatever we can't agree on till later, then we may have some achievement. And adaptation is in that category of we can actually get an agreement in Cancun if we agree to an incremental approach. John, what are the key points up for negotiation as far as the developing countries are concerned? Well, apart from the money which Salimul has, 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 has mentioned, which is overriding everything in a way, um, we have forests and technology, and these are probably two of the, the big ones. Forests are a very, very ambitious plan to conserve the world's forests and therefore up to, I don't know, 15, 18, 20% of global emissions using market mechanisms to repay people who conserve them. But the scale of this and the ambition of this is absolutely enormous and the money involved could be vast. And most of the world's, uh, the biggest forests are in tropical countries, which are some of the, the, uh, the poorest. Well, we'll come back to forests in a minute, because I agree that's a really crucial issue. But tell us, what about the other aspects of this, the, the technology you mentioned, for example, and, and finance? Technology they're not too far away from. There is a proposal that the rich countries uh, set up uh, centres of technology in different developing countries, or from which uh, developing, developing countries can draw. Um, and it's just a question of money, and it's, it's not very complicated. It should be possible to get a long way or certainly make some good steps forward there. Salimul, do you reckon there's enough money on the table for adaptation? 
I think in the short term there is. The the $30 billion that I mentioned, the fast start finance, is supposed to be given in a balance between adaptation and mitigation with the adaptation funding being prioritized on the most vulnerable countries. So if that actually means $15 billion, and we're not quite sure exactly how much of that will be for adaptation, but let's say half of that is adaptation, then that over three years is actually a sizable amount of money with which the vulnerable countries can actually do something quite substantive on the ground, help their people to deal with the problems that are already occurring. But again, it's a matter of getting that agreement in Cancun. David, there's another strand of the negotiations, John's just mentioned it briefly, which is the snappily named RED, reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. What's up for negotiation here? Well, in Copenhagen, there was recognition that forests are a crucial part of the climate change solution. Unless the science is clear that if we don't tackle deforestation, we're not going to solve climate change. It has to be a crucial arm in the negotiations, along with dealing with the technology, dealing with industrial emissions. And the negotiations have moved fairly rapidly forward on RED, largely because the countries with forests hold sufficient political will to offer those forests up as part of a climate change agreement, provided the money is right. And the developed countries also see it as a relatively cost-effective way of tackling climate change. And that political will has meant the negotiations have moved faster than probably most other strands within the climate change negotiations. The difficulty, of course, is the money. And there will be decisions made on the ground by local landowners and local industrial enterprises about what is the most profitable use of the land that contains forests in front of them. But there isn't yet the confidence that the longer-term finance will be there, and you see this distrust going on in the negotiations. John, you've written various articles about RED, and you've got a lot of concerns that it's already showing signs of corruption and, and so forth. What kind of deal would there be that could allay your concerns? Well, I think what we've seen so far are either trials or fairly small-scale ones. And where these have been tried out in Papua New Guinea or Indonesia or wherever, they're always associated with corruption of one sort or another. Now, that's not necessarily a problem, but when it's scaled up onto maybe $30 billion a year being moved from rich countries to poor countries or whatever, and you look at some of the countries who have gained the most, like, I don't know, Equatorial Guinea or Congo or wherever it might be, where political leaders and others have got PhDs in corruption, um, you might have sort of fantastic problems emerging. But I think that the, the, the problem which, which Daffy has come onto is, is, is very much the social problem, that it's, it's very good for sort of corporations or governments or big-scale people moving in. But what about the people who depend on these forests and who live in them? And are they going to be excluded? Are they going to be... And there's a thousand questions which raise themselves over, effectively, you could say, the privatisation of the world's forests. Salimul, there's a lot of discussion here of big sums of money, 30 billion for adaptation, 4 billion in red. Is is this new money or are countries raiding their aid budgets? That's a very good question. In in the Copenhagen Accord last year in December, uh, they they used the phrase this should be new and additional money. It's not quite clear exactly what they mean by that. We we just carried out a study looking at the pledges that the country, the rich countries have made since Copenhagen. The good news is that it does add up to about $30 billion. Uh, The not-so-good news is that a lot of it is being double-counted in terms of their development assistance budgets. And even amongst the rich countries, even within the European Union, for example, they can't agree 
on what the norms should be of what counts as new and additional, how much can be double counted, even if some of it might be. And I feel that's one of the issues that should be resolved. At least let's agree on how much of this is new, how much of it might be potentially double counted reasonably, but doesn't seem to be any ground rules and nobody seems to be agreeing on exactly what those definitions are. But there's clearly double counting going on. Salim, you're you're in Cancun. To what extent do you think the BRICS, the new emerging middle income countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, are framing and really making the running on this international negotiations? I get the sense that in the last year, since Copenhagen and just before Copenhagen, they have been getting their act together much, much more substantially and are really taking this issue much more seriously, both domestically in their own countries, in China, in India, in Brazil, in South Africa. They're having plans for transforming their own economies into a a, a more green pathway. And they're bringing those ideas to the international negotiation tables, which is a good thing. Unfortunately, it's probably unlikely to unlock itself in Cancun. It might take a a few more years to do that at the global level in terms of a global mitigation target agreement. But they're certainly taking this much more seriously and they're becoming much more proactive in the negotiations, which, as I said, is a very good thing. And and John, you've been very impressed by some of the leaders coming out of Latin America, for example. How do they change the the terms of the debate? Well, I think Cancun's going to be particularly interesting because it is in the backyard of the Latin Americans who have basically chosen or are in the process of choosing a different development path. Um, So you have the Chavezes in Venezuela, you have the Koreas, you have Peru, Ecuador. They're all going in in, in very different directions, which we in the West might term as left-wing or whatever, but actually could be argued are are much more responsible ways for dividing up resources and and, and, and helping individuals. What we're going to see, I think, is these uh, very powerful, charismatic, populist leaders turning up probably unannounced, in Cancun and trying to take the world stage and just to really pin America and Europe um, and the other rich countries down on their lack of ambition, which they've shared so far, and probably embarrass them very, very severely. Well, while world leaders gather in Cancun next week, the struggle to adapt to climate change is already happening at a local level. In Dandali in southeast Mali last month, they're piloting a market gardening scheme to try and deal with the shorter, more erratic rains. Down below the village here, the local women are watering small plots of land with water that's been brought in gourds from the river. We're standing next to a raised bed, which is surrounded by very low rock walls and tiny little squares where they're growing onions, predominantly onions. Mr Mayiga, can you explain why the stone walls are across these vegetable plots, like lattice work, leaving plots of only two feet by two feet? They use these slabs of rock to keep the soil in place and prevent it from being blown away by the wind. So these little walls around the plots are to prevent soil erosion. Back at the village, one woman takes a break from feeding her baby to explain how the market gardens have improved her family's diet. Formerly, we had only one main meal, which is made from millet. But nowadays, with the advent of this gardening, we have different spices. We have potatoes, we have tomatoes, we have many, many things that can make a change in our diet. And they are really growing up quickly and in a very good health. John, what examples did you find of adaptation in South America? 
very, very exciting ones. Um, on a community level, lots of people digging reservoirs and pipes and collecting water, harvesting water, uh, rethinking how they irrigate land and things like that, insulating houses, whatever. The most impressive was actually came from the Ecuadorian government and from the oil minister of all people who has recommended that 940 million barrels of oil, crude oil, uh, found in one of the most uh, sensitive parts of, 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 of Ecuador in the forests should be left there if countries pay half the value for it. So uh, basically for $3.5 billion, the world would get the most diverse place in the world protected in perpetuity. And it's a different kind of economics. It's a really, whether it gets through or whether the money can be found is another matter. But it shows that even governments and oil ministers are thinking very, very laterally about this. It was very exciting indeed. Salimal, you're very familiar with Bangladesh, uh, which is struggling with sea level rises. Can you give us examples of adaptation at a community level? Certainly. I think Bangladesh is a very good example of a country that is being very proactive on this issue all the way from the government down to communities. And to give you a few examples of what's happening at the community level, in the coastal areas, people are doing a lot more rainwater harvesting because the drinking water in the ground has become quite saline. They've managed to do this on quite a sizable scale. In the flood-prone areas, they're developing things like floating gardens, floating cropping patterns on floating rafts where they go up when the water comes up. In, in terms of agricultural cropping patterns, for example, a number of new rice varieties have been developed by this, both the scientists and the communities working together, more saline rice varieties that can be grown in the coastal zones, which are, as I said, becoming more saline. And the government's also being extremely proactive. The government of Bangladesh has actually put $100 million of its own money into uh, implementing a national climate change strategy, uh, which includes mostly adaptation, but also includes some mitigation activities as well. David, we've just heard two really interesting examples where the, the, the government of Ecuador and the government of Bangladesh is playing a really crucial role. What happens when you have a, a weak state or a corrupt state or, or, or a country, indeed a conflict uh, zone, where there is no effective government at all? One of the difficulties, obviously, is ensuring that the money that is on the table can achieve its objectives. And when money goes missing, it fails to achieve its objective, but it also leads to conflicts. It means that local people with expectations of their local issues being addressed discover that, in fact, their local politician now owns a bigger house and drives a better car, and they're still struggling with with the droughts, with the floodings, and so on. And, and not only do we fail to tackle climate change, but it leads to increased risks of conflict and, and social unrest. Salimal, we've had a, a question on our website from Venusian Van, who says that it's sort of adaptation is kind of pointless when you haven't really got a deal on climate change emissions, unless you can actually really put a ceiling on those that you're just really kind of... Uh, discussing a blood transfusion for a patient who still has the lion gnawing it on his leg. Uh, what's your response to that? Well, in a sense, it is true. In the long run, unless we get a, a really good agreement on mitigation, then the whole world is essentially doomed. If we have temperature rises in the order of four or five degrees, which is potentially where we are headed, then the entire globe is going to be affected, and even rich countries are going to be badly affected. So that is true, but that's over a timescale of the next 50 to 100 years. In the near term, over the next 10, 20, possibly 30 years, actually there's no amount of mitigation that is going to change what's going to happen because of the time lags in the system. If we were to reduce emissions to zero tomorrow, the next 20 years' worth of climate change or global temperature rise is actually locked in. 
So in this near term, the only option we have is to just prepare ourselves and to adapt and, and be able to cope with the impacts as best we can. That doesn't mean we can bring them to zero. Only by not emitting can we actually reduce the emission uh, impact to zero. Adaptation is, is very much an ameliorative or a palliative to try and reduce the impacts, but they never come down to zero. So, Salim, what would you say would be the best Christmas present that Cancun could give you? I would say that uh, a, a galvanized intent from all the countries to take this issue much more seriously than they have in the past. Uh, do what they can. So I'm, I'm very much a proponent of incremental uh, activities. Let's start doing things on the ground. As we do things, we will learn what needs to be done. As we do them, we will find that all this fear that a lot of the developed and developed, large developing countries have of uh, transforming their economies away from a fossil fuel-based economy is actually going to cost them a lot of jobs and money and see that it, it A, it won't cost as much, and B, it's actually a good thing. It may generate more green jobs and more uh, cleaner economies and, and greener economies and more efficient economies. And, and I have a sort of positive mentality about these changes that are going to be needed rather than an uh, old paradigm of a negative mentality of it was a zero-sum game and we're all going to lose by doing this. If we can start that momentum in Cancun and then resolve it over the next few years, I remain hopeful. John, what about you? Is there a key issue you're looking out for? I think it's the relationship with America, frankly. Um, I mean, they are no longer players in the sense that they cannot, conceivably because of their domestic arrangements, uh, get anywhere near a legally binding deal. But they are still meddling and they are still leading the rich countries, the other rich countries, and encouraging them to come behind them and to have very, very low ambitions and do little as possible. And really, I think that that relationship will have to change if we're going to get anywhere at all. Davis? Uh, there's a realistic chance to get an agreement on forests in Cancun. I don't think it'll be a, a particularly detailed agreement and the devil will be in the detail. So we will see an incremental step that keeps the momentum going on the concept of protecting the world's forests and that's an important thing to happen. But it will be merely the first step in many and, and the really controversial battles will still be to come. Well, that's all for this week's Focus podcast. Many thanks to my guests, John Vidal, David Stewart and Salim Al-Huck. The producer was Ian Chambers with research by Claire Provo. I'm Madeleine Bunting and thank you for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Don't forget to start your free 14-day trial of audible.co.uk and to download your free audiobook, head to guardian.co.uk slash audible.